This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Roden, the safety doc, wishing you a very happy holiday season. We just got done with Thanksgiving, and hey, we're headed for our first snowfall of the year of any significance. It could have some travel implications, but I think things will be okay. Outside yesterday, it was the Griswold family Christmas of working together to get all of the lights up. I have a 150-foot strand of lights that go around the maple tree in the front. Wasn't going to put them back up because some sections don't work anymore. But when you turn, well, not when you turn the sun off. I don't know if anyone's done that. But at night, um, you can't really tell of the burnt-out sections and the sections that aren't burnt out. It kind of looks like it was designed that way when it's in the tree and kind of a cool effect. So we just kept it. But each year, um, it is a beast to put up and a beast to take down. You can probably tell. I went to the dentist. Teeth are are clean. Um, But because I'm drinking more coffee, immediately I had to inform the dental assistant that teeth are probably going to be a little stained. I haven't taken up smoking, but I have been drinking more coffee. And that was confirmed. She said, yep. But she got them looking great again. Um, And of course, the question, how often do you floss? My answer, Sundays. (laughs) So (laughs) so just the way that it is. Um, My daughters had their annual photo today with an elf and a reindeer. Happens downtown in our community. They they come in and it's in front of a, a large uh, decorated tree, and it's really nice. And we've we've had these pictures taken now. I think each year, um, maybe except one when it was like raining, um, since the girls were born. So we have the sequence of photos, which is pretty neat to see the uh, progression from when you're holding, you know, your your daughter as an infant to to now, um, you know, when they're middle schoolers. But um, yeah, the elf and, and the reindeer line wasn't quite as long today when we got there, which is good because sometimes that is just ridiculously long. It's very popular. So um, there was a story that came out from ABC News, and I posted it on Twitter. It stuck with me. It's, it's bothered me. I want to talk about it today. The story is British school bans 
pricey Canada goose coats in hopes of preventing, quotes, poverty shaming, quotes. So poverty shaming, this is what this whole initiative is is meant to take on, poverty shaming. The article is by Guy Davies of ABC News. It came out November 19th, 2018. So let me first tell you about this Canada Goose Company, okay? So I did some research on the Canadian Goose. Enough of them fly over my house. So, um, But these are, these are jackets which sell for about $1,000 per jacket. So pricey, they're deemed to be a luxury and designer item, but I did some research into the company. And there's more to this, okay? So first of all, yes, yeah, so it's, it's an expensive jacket. I, I don't own a $1,000 jacket, but um, I'm sure people own, you know, jackets that are $1,000 if they're engaged in, you know, aggressive outdoor activities and things like that. I mean, think of what people spend on, you know, equipment if they're skiing or hunters and things like that. But anyway, $1,000 jacket. So Canada Goose started in nineteen in, in the 1950s. It was a small company focused mostly on snowmobile suits and making high-quality outdoor clothing. Okay, that's how it got its start. So it's been around for quite a while. Um, the company seems to have perfected the use of down filling um, in, as an insulator in clothing. So that's, that's kind of their claim to fame, Canadian Goose using down feathers as, as insulation. Had a, had a down jacket once, it was, it was awesome. Kept me really, really warm. So in the 1980s, the company, in, um, inspired by one of the coldest places on earth, created the Expedition Parka. So it was developed to meet the needs of scientists at Antarctica's McMurdo Station. It became standard issue and had the nickname Big Red. So obviously a solid red jacket meant for the scientist at the Antarctica station. So that's the 80s. Then in 2004, and there's this whole timeline, but I'm, I'm picking out some parts of it. The 2004 timeline. Canada Goose has long been the unofficial jacket. So I'm pulling this off their website, but also confirming it. Um, unofficial jacket of film crews everywhere it's cold. It makes on-screen debuts in two key films, The Day After Tomorrow and National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, one of my favorite movies. So I clicked around their website and was wondering if they would have some kind of statement about this jacket shaming ban um, or this, this, this ban on their jacket um, in Britain. And they didn't. Nothing I could find. And I don't think they should. I, I, I don't think they need to have a response to this. Um, but I was curious. But I'm also looking through their lineup of jackets and thinking, these all seem very tactful to me. Um, most of them are, are, you know, very kind of eloquent and a professional, you know, solid color. You could definitely see if you spent time outdoors, how this would be a great jacket to have. It's one of those things that, that to me, and I'm not your trend <laughs> and fashion specialist here, I wear a navy peacoat, an authentic navy peacoat that's probably 15 to 20 years old. Um, and it 
goes to the dry cleaner every spring um, to get ready for storage and then, you know, bring it out in fall and wear it for the season. So <laughs> there's nothing fancy about a wool navy peacoat, but it's very durable. I love it. Um, I'm not sure how much it cost me. I think it's I, when I bought it, um, maybe it, like 150 to 200 somewhere in there. It was like a new issue, um, but unused navy peacoat, authentic navy peacoat, though. Um, anyway, so I'm checking around the website for Canada Goose because they they've now become headline fodder for. Kids are wearing these Canada Goose jackets. Other kids are feeling uncomfortable because they're $1,000 jackets. They, these other students don't have these jackets or can't afford them. So they're feeling oppressed. They're, they're, they're feeling inferior that these students have the jackets. Other students don't have jackets. So the solution, of course, is to ban the jackets. Um, but I'm going around the website and I'm thinking, you know, these jackets are made very well and I'm assuming that they would be very durable, that they would probably last a long time. So again, nothing kind of caught me off, you know, caught some feelings of, oh, like this, this is, you know, this isn't tactful because it's of, of the way that it's designed or, or something like that. It's very classy, very classy stuff. So anyway, um, Canada Goose jack coats, jackets have been banned by one school in Canada, but this is part of a, of a growing process right now of banning so-called luxury and designer items um, because then if you don't have those in the school, the premise is students that can't afford those items won't feel inferior to students who possess those items. So basically, it's called poverty shaming. Now, in reality, it seems like it's wealth shaming, that you're shaming students who can afford these personally or who have their, their parents buy these for them. To me, personally, it doesn't matter. You know, like it doesn't matter to me. If my daughters came to me and said, we're not going to fit in at school unless we have this type of, of sneakers and this type of clothing or whatever, it'd be, well, we have two choices here. One is you can buy some of those things with your own money that you earn. Um, or the second is, you know, you get something nice and functional and don't worry about the other stuff. But I mean, if you really want one item or whatever, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if you have the means to do it. But if you don't get it, I also, you know, life goes on, life is fine. I, I, <laughs> I bike, I have a nice bike, but I, you know, people pass me who have a, bikes that are 10 times the cost of mine. And I don't, you know, gnarl my, my teeth and, and be like, oh, you know, they have that bike and I have this bike and, and whatever. I, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I drive an 11 year old car, um, it doesn't, those types of things don't matter. So I think these are also lessons for students, um, for for kids, that you're always going to have situations where people will have, with, with affluence or without affluence, are going to have things. And does a, does a Canada goose jacket or coat make sense? Well, I don't know. I mean, 
it depends upon how much you're using it and what you're using it for. I would say, though, it looks like it's very well-made, durable, and classy. Again, this is Guy Davies. The article is British School Bans Pricey Canada Goose Coats in Hopes of Preventing Poverty Shaming. Here we go. With the coldest months of winter fast approaching, a school in the UK has banned luxury coats in order to help poverty-proof its educational environment. The head teacher at Woodchurch High School in rural England moved to ban coats made by expensive brands after consulting with both parents and pupils. Students will no longer be allowed to sport jackets from Canada Goose, Montclair, or Pyronex in order to reduce the stress on low-income families to spend money beyond their means in order to keep up with higher earners. We are very concerned about the fact that our children put a lot of pressure on parents to buy them expensive coats, head teacher Rebecca Phillips told the Independent newspaper. In a letter, the school informed parents that Canada Goose, Montclair, and Pyronex coats were going to be banned after the Christmas break, according to the Independent. The designer coats can often cost hundreds of dollars. The concept of poverty proofing in the UK was pioneered by Children North East, a children's charity nearly seven and a half years ago. It is the process of auditing a school to take action against practices and policies that might stigmatize the poorest pupils. Luke Bramhill, school research and delivery lead at Children North East, told ABC News, these measures can include training school staff on poverty and its impact on education. What we might deem as small practices have an incredible impact on students' sense of belonging in the school day, said Bramhill. Some schools, like Woodchurch High School, have decided to create their own poverty-proofing policies. The move has seen a mixed reaction online. One social media user expressed dismay. So to counteract poverty shaming, they introduce wealth shaming. If they really wanted to solve the problem, they'd introduce a new coat as part of their uniform. I hope these poor children never have to spend a day in the real world. A recent UN study on poverty in the UK warned that child poverty is rising again and expected to continue increasing sharply in the coming years. The widely respected Institute for Fiscal Studies predicts a 7% rise in child poverty between 2015 and 2022. And various sources predict child poverty rates of as high as 40%, the report said. For almost one in every two children to be poor in 21st century Britain is not just a disgrace, but a social calamity and an economic disaster all rolled into one. The idea of poverty-proofing in schools looks to be gaining ground in the UK. The luxury coat ban at Woodchurch High School follows a similar decision at St. Willifred's Primary School in Blythe, England, earlier this year, in which designer pencil cases were banned to prevent poor students from being stigmatized, according to the BBC. So I'm not going to read that again because I absolutely don't want to. Absolutely don't want to. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Okay, the problems with this, the problems with this. Let me preface this first. I teach inclusion at the college level, inclusion of students with special needs, students with disabilities, uh, people non-discrimination, um, to aspiring superintendents, directors of special education, principals. So I certainly am aware of acceptance tolerance, inclusion. And to me, this is not promoting inclusive practices. Um, I'll, I'll get into that, but when you have a paragraph that's, that says, the widely respected Institute for Fiscal Studies predicts a 7% rise in child poverty between 2015 and 22, and various sources predict child poverty rates of as high as 40%. So you're doing nothing, nothing with root causes, nothing with root causes. You are only trying to pick and choose some direct causes, some tangible things, again, that are very visible. This is also what we see in school safety when bollards are drilled into the cement and anchored in front of schools. People can see that. It gives this illusion of feeling safe. This gives the illusion of equity, and it's absolutely not present. <laughs> so if anything, you've, you've added a spotlight now to children who did not have these designer items. So when I was, when I was growing up, I really didn't know the difference between a designer item for the most part and something that wasn't designer. I know a couple of kids had guest jeans, which was kind of interesting because there were some commercials for those, but I was fine. It's a Levi's guy, always fine by that. Never felt, um, I, I, I preferred to have, you know, t-shirts and jeans and, and stuff like that. But anyway, I think this is making a problem out of something that's not a problem. I also think that this is creating a quote-unquote solution to something that's not a problem. And this is building, um, that's built on virtue signaling that we're going to do something about poverty. And of course, instead of genuinely doing something about poverty, okay, genuinely doing something about poverty, you, you just tackle a direct cause. And like, what has Canada Goose done to bring this on? Again, I'm going through their site and I'm thinking, this is really just a very quality outdoor recreation um, or, or even formal 
um, coat jacket site. That's what this is. Um, there isn't any boasting of, you know, huge name brands and three inch letters and stuff like that. I mean, so I'm, oh, okay. So here's, here's problems, obvious problems. Banning these coats is a sloppy attempt at virtue signaling. Or what I mean by virtue signaling is like, we care about equity. We care about all of our students. We care about poverty, about resolving poverty. So we have fewer students um, in poverty. We continue to reverse a trend line, which is very well documented in this article. Um, we want to reverse this, this trend line and take measures to reverse this trend line. No. What we're going to do instead is we're going to ban the expensive coats. So, but not, we're not going to ban the iPhones and we're not going to ban the shoes and we can't ban the fact that the some of these students live in very expensive homes and their parents pick them up in very expensive cars and they get to go on outings and flights to, you know, New York City and other places. And nope. Those types of things we can't do anything about yet, I suppose. Maybe one day. Maybe one day, not too far from now. But anyway, it's virtue signaling. It's Again, it's tangible. It's, it's what people can see, um, and that's how people react. People want what they can see, what is visible, what is tangible. So, yeah, we go and we ban I found it interesting, again, that there wasn't a counterstatement by Canada Goose to some effect, or even like in the article, there wasn't, and then on the website, and I don't blame them for that, because again, I don't think you need to be in a defensive position, but at least the, there wasn't some position saying, it's not really the fault of the manufacturers of since 1950 who's made maybe the best snowmobile suits around that now they've become a banned company. Um, and what, so what are you going to do in this, this case um, for these companies? I mean, you, you've, you're sending a message. I mean, so what if the adults wear this to school events? And is it okay for them to wear a Canada Goose jacket outside during a cold um, season event? or if they're visiting their child's school in the cold months. I mean, is it okay for the adults to do that? So, so the article paints this very gloomy statistical portrait of the future poverty in Britain. Really not so much future. It said between 2015 and or 2015 and 2022, we're going to have this increase to 7%, and we could see poverty rates up as high as 40%, so, you know, just a, a few years away. So very gloomy statistical portrait from what it is saying, the widely respected Institute for Fiscal Studies. So that is something that's very odd in this article. Now, I like the article, I think, is obviously very truthful. I think it's slanted to give a perspective more of, of what's going on versus opinion of 
the persons impacted by this, um, but be it students or families, and also be it the manufacturers and, and the marketers and the stores that, that carry these things. And, and did you also now become targeted because you have more expensive items? Now, there's there's something I've adopted as I've grown older as a strategy. I will buy something that's more expensive if I know it's going to last. So that has to do with my leaf blower that I purchased this spring, um, you know, lawnmower, things like that. I guess they're utilitarian, but I mean, um, even with shoes, for example, you know, I will put more money into shoes and sandals, things that I'm going to use quite a bit if I expect them to last because the investment I'm putting into them and taking care of them. Um, but you know, there's a reason I put steel siding on my house and there's a reason when the roof is a 40 year shingle. I mean, it's putting this investment in, um, but have I created a house now that makes my neighbor, you know, a couple houses down who has vinyl siding and an older roof and paints his house? Is he feeling somewhat oppressed because I have this nice steel siding, you know, I don't think of it that way, but who knows? Take this article, where do we extend this out? Where do we push out the envelope on this? It's actually a really dangerous article um, because it shows that we are entering into the socialism of chipping away and it is, it, it's chipping away at what we perceive as direct causes for this quote-unquote um, restoration of, of equilibrium um, in, in schools, for example. But you're going to see this like through society. It's like, you know, <laughs> a person pretty soon you're not going to be able to drive a, you know, Mercedes if you're in England. You know, that everybody has to kind of come to this baseline range of vehicles. Like it, it can... They all have to be based, you know, pretty much the same price and the same options and whatever. Um, you know, is, again, is it? Are we going to start moving toward that? So this article is, paints this really gloomy picture of something that's spiraling out of control. You can't reverse it. So what you can do, apparently, is you can ban the jackets. So. Um, any anything can really the the Canada goose jacket is symbolic. It could be, you know, what's next? Is it electronics? Is it sneakers? Or is it orthodontics? Is some student who is able to afford braces? You know, in the U.S., my daughters each had braces, so um, orthodontics about five thousand bucks. Um. And that's something we had to pay out of pocket. So what if you can't afford that? So now if your child has braces and a student um, who could benefit from braces but doesn't have the economic means to get braces, um, and does this become the next form of, of banning? Imagine how you do that. But isn't it? in a way, the same type of thing, in a way, isn't it the same or similar, right? 
if you read my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, you'll know there is no sameness, only similar. But um, so again, I'm a, I'm a parent. I think it's a really lame excuse for any parent to argue in support of this ban by saying, well, this takes the pressure off me as a parent because now I don't have to listen to my kids say that um, because they don't have this this jacket, they're not going to fit in or they're going to be ostracized and things like that, which I don't think happens, um, at least not to the extent that, that this is out there. I mean, you can buy some pretty <laughs> clothes of, I mean, just think of where we are as a society, what you can purchase for clothing um, today versus years ago. I mean, and, and nice stuff. And yeah, if you want to go up to this luxury level, but you can get a really nice jacket, not for $1,000, but for $100, my God. So let's take the school that banned the Canada Goose Jacket. So how about schools in the area, other schools? And do they have the same types of technology that this school has? that banned this, this, uh, this um, Wood Church High School. So do, do they have the, does that high school have, um, have like a big gymnasium and, and expensive things and really cool uniforms for um, athletes or teams, you know, com- competing and, you know, whatever. Um, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, what are the buses like? How clean are the rooms? How much light is there? The thing is, it's not equitable, right? We know that there's schools in that conference that have better economic support um, and schools that don't have the same economic support. Schools that are older haven't been maintained and schools that are newer that are going to have more of the technology. So under the same premise, Shouldn't we look to balance out these schools? Shouldn't we go further than this and look at, do an audit of Woodchurch High School and say, you know what, you've got more smart boards than these three other schools. So in order to make this fair, in order for these other schools to not feel and their teachers that they are inferior to your school and their students if they're coming over and competing at your school in different events and, and just meeting outside of school, that they don't feel inferior. We're going to, to divide up these smart boards that are in your school. We, we know that they cost $8,000 and you had to get them specially hung up and wired in your system, but really it's the right thing to do, right? It is, right? Because we, we want everybody to have equitable, equitable opportunities. So we're going to do that. By the way, um, the budget that you have for you know maintenance or whatever, which is which is higher than these schools, we're we're going to level that out to take some of that, um, and and invest it into these other schools to raise those schools up, so those schools can have uh, better maintained facilities, faster internet, right? Because that ma- that makes sense. Like, how can we argue about that? How can we argue about that Woodchurch High School, right? How can we argue? about that. So should these other schools be forced to share their wealth, to redistribute their wealth with other schools? How much they pay teachers, the benefits, the buses, everything I've talked about, curriculums, trainings, should they be shared 
to for you know forced into distributing that with the other schools that necessarily don't have those. So I remember playing basketball, and I grew up in a town that was affluent, smaller town, very robust economy, uh, very nice high school, um, and we played an away game. Uh, one of the teams in our conference, and I had never been to this this town before. It was like in seventy five miles away. It's up north. It was a logging town. It was kind of a depressed area. Logging had kind of long since gone. And we played. And I remember the gym was tile floor, uh, metal backboards, and um, it, it was like being inside, kind of like a machine shed. Um, and completely different than where our home court was, what we played on. And um, it it struck me a little bit because I, I wasn't, I just wasn't aware of that coming in. But one of the things though is when we took the court and played the other team, even though our uniforms were nicer, we had fancy warm-ups with our names on them and all of this stuff, um, we played them team to team, player to player, skill to skill. It didn't matter. This other stuff didn't matter. What they presented as a community was the best that they were able to present as a community with their resources. But their, their players, it was the game. Played hard, we played hard. Um, didn't leave there thinking we were better than them as far as wealth or status. Um, I think we did win that game. We had, the team was good. Um, but it wasn't that. It wasn't making comments like, boy, I'm glad I don't live here or go to school here. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying that in that instance, that wasn't what that was all about. It was about playing a game of basketball. So this is the core issue is everyone gets treated for the value that they they bring. So it's not that we have to go up there to this other school and play with different types of uniforms or we can't have expensive shoes or whatever or if they, you know, play at our site, we have to put some restrictions on where we play. We can't use the glass backboards, which were kind of new back then, because they don't have them and it would make them feel inadequate. So we'd have to play, actually, the elementary school had glass backboards too. So I don't know where we'd play someplace that didn't have glass backboards. But see, yes, it doesn't make sense, right, folks? You're, you're following along with me. This doesn't make sense. In Texas, I have a friend who teaches in Texas. She shared that they have something called the, like the Robin Hood tax. Basically, schools that are growing um, in enrollment, there's a, there's a distribution of the income. I don't know if the income, but the property taxes. So these, these areas are growing. Um, new building construction is going up. Uh, but then all of the dollars kind of get spread out across the district. So it's, what happens is these districts that are growing have a hard time funding school additions and, and paying staff because the money that's coming in 
from that community is getting spread out all throughout Texas. It was a big problem. It took a long time for them to even have like catch up uh, with, with buildings, you know, buildings that should have been put up 10 years ago because of population increase. So is that equitable? Is that fair? Is that the right way to do things? The thinking represented in this article will spread to attacks on brands. Um, we're going we're gonna to see that. We're, we're also going to see at some point a Wood Church High School type place contact parents and say, listen, we prefer that you don't pick your child up in a Mercedes or a BMW. Okay. We prefer that you don't do that because other students aren't picked up in luxury vehicles like that. Or if you're going to do that, please do it at this pickup site, which is three blocks away from the school where the other students aren't going to see you. And pretty soon, if that goes through, then it'll just be mandated that you have this specific area if you have this type of vehicle you can't come into if you're picking up students. Um, again, because it is going to be perceived as an oppression, a signal of wealth, and it's going to be wealth shaming. We're not far from that, folks. We are not far from that. This, uh, this article shows how we are sowing the seeds for socialism and eventually for wealth redistribution. That part is the most frightening to me as I enter retirement. I've talked about this on the Older Brother podcast recently, but have um, gone through numerous times through my spreadsheets, nor I am at for retirement, retiring very near future. Um and we'll be fine unless there's some change in government policy which says now we are going to take 15% of everybody's retirement accounts and distribute that wealth redistribution. So it's gone. Goodbye. Um, and what can you do in that case? So that's my fear. And especially as I see the people who voted and also the younger people who are voted in and the people who are more in the, you know, area of wanting socialism. Um, I don't think we're far off from, you know, the people will say, well, that, that won't happen because there's laws against it. But I'm like, well, laws can be changed. <laughs> and with enough people, and it's like, well, people will have, you know, they'll be, they won't, want this. They'll be vested. They have too much skin in the game. I'm like, but not really. Because if you're 30 years old and you have $100,000 in student loans, wealth redistribution sounds pretty good to you, right? And I think that's going to be the future. I mean, I am a statistical anomaly of being able to retire at 47 years old. Um, I will also gladly show the scars on my knuckles from packing styrofoam into cinder blocks to insulate them as a 12-year-old. 
earning probably $3 an hour. Um, bloody knuckles with gloves on, by the way. But actually, I loved that job. I loved working. I worked hard. And I worked to get to this point where then I could do other things in life and not be coupled to specific employment and an employer. But this could all be gone with wealth redistribution. And then what is the message you're sending to the people who are entrepreneurs, who are working the extra hours for the students who are um, taking you know, advanced classes and, and working for the scholarships? Um, what are you saying? You're basically saying, yeah, it's, you can do all of that stuff and then we are going to take a larger cut out of that for everybody else. So you will reap the benefits of that and get to keep a much smaller part. To me, that's not right. Completely not right. I do not envy Jeff Bezos. I don't envy wealthy people. Um, And we are going to create where to go down that path of, you know, whether it be an academic standout, whether it be that you start your own, you know, uh, again, business, you go into a high paying profession, you're going to be penalized for this because you're going to be seen as a microaggressor. There's going to be wealth shaming. There's going to be accomplishment shaming. So by passing this insane set of designer clothing rules, the school has effectually put the spotlight on kids that already didn't have these things. Um, And these kids aren't naive that just because their peers are banned from having Canada Goose and the other jackets, that things are all fine now. This is a big step in resolving this. Because why do this unless this is a substantial step in resolving this? Nobody's that stupid, and the kids aren't that stupid. This was a, it, this is idiocracy, and it stifles meritocracy. So today, this is wealth shaming. Tomorrow, it can be intelligent shaming. We already have this somewhat at the universities, right, with quotas on students getting in with different ACT scores, um, different racial backgrounds and ACT scores. So we already have some of this. It's more subtle, but we already have some of it, right? You know what they say in Japan? The nail that sticks out shall be hammered down. So that... um, that statement is is coming to fruition. It really is. I had I wrote about this in my book, Lessons of, of Lower Manhattan. Let's let's take a look at this from a school safety filter. So one right off the bat is I'm looking at this and I'm saying that um, from a personal safety standpoint, psychological safety, this is re- this is really a pretty dangerous article because you're creating a very false environment. You're creating a sense that everybody is 
equal and society then will be equal and it's not. Um, and also like was that you, you cannot force this, this face value, um, equity amongst people. But so anyway, I wrote about a, a fictional student called Marcus named Marcus and in my book, Lessons of Lore, Manhattan. So Marcus is the top in his class. He's the best athlete. Um, he rocks it with academics. He's a great friend. Um, so here's one thing, like if you ever check out Marcus Buckingham, not related to my Marcus that I'm writing about, but Marcus Buckingham has um, trombone player needed. You can find it on YouTube, but it's basically saying play to your strengths. Play to your strengths. Whatever you're good at, like keep working at that. And there'll be some things you're never good at, but that's all right. Someone else will be good at those things. But play to your strengths. Don't try to sacrifice your strengths um, in order to bring your weaknesses up a little bit. So, and there's a lot of sense in that of play to your strengths. If I'm really, really good at this one subject, but I'm not good at four other subjects, like I'm... Great at science, but I'm not great at English or something like that. Do I sacrifice the time I'm putting in on science to bring up my English and language arts scores? And how much time do I, I do that? So maybe then my science drops from an A down to a B, but my English goes from a C to a B. To a B. So I've kind of sacrificed what I'm really good at. I'm not investing as much there in order to bring up something that I'm not as good at. Well, here's the deal. Like if I put all of my, if my strength is science, I'm really great at it, and I can hone that even more, I can hire an editor for the the language and English part, okay? So it is knowing too that on a team, everybody has different strengths and you're going to use the strengths of different people. This person is really good at spreadsheets and looking at these things. Here's our, our presentation team. They really have it down. Here's like our planning team and whatever. I mean, people, that's how you hire. Like <laughs> you have very specialized positions in every company, if IT department, human resources department, um, business department, and I, so, so on and so forth. But this whole thing with Marcus, instead of being the leader, possibly being the safety leader. So we have a, you know, fire drill, Marcus, if you can help make sure, you know, everybody gets in line and, and gets out, we would appreciate that, the, the Marcuses. But what we do instead is we, we, we try to bring Marcus more toward the norm. People say, this Marcus kid, he's standing out a little too much. It's like the Incredibles, the end of the first Incredibles where the, 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 son dash is they're afraid to let him compete in school track meets because he would just beat everybody and then he would stand out and it wouldn't really be fair and the other kids would feel bad so um this is the, this is the situation that's kind of going on with with marcus so you have some people recognizing they're like maybe because marcus is so good at these things other people are not feeling that they have the opportunity and they're, they're feeling inadequate relative to Marcus. So it becomes this, you know, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down type of mentality. And Marcus efforts are 
attempted instead of the gifted and talented challenging Marcus, it's to bring Marcus more toward the norm. So I have even seen the practice of students being assigned turns and leading the class out during fire drills. And in some cases, um, students with, with disabilities who, again, need to be a part of fire drills and educated at the fire drills, but for the purpose of having the experience of being a leader will now lead the fire drill out. Okay, this is not a good idea for an inclusive education first world society, but during a crisis, we need to empower the most capable people in those situations into the leadership roles. These are the follow me kits, and we need to have them and not force them down into some kind of norm. Talked about this with Dr. Paul Rapp, who's in agreement with me on this, head of military medicine. We've got to be very careful of this. This isn't meant to be cold-hearted or anything like that, but this is very practical. This is very practical safety. Why is it on airplanes that they have specific requirements, both physically and cognitively, for persons sitting next to the emergency exit door? Let's think about that. So going to read from an article that was written a number of years ago. Okay. Here's the reality with the coveted extra leg room next to those exit doors on planes. If you can't do the job, not only could you get yourself trampled and seriously hurt by other passengers trying to get to and through that hatch in an emergency evacuation, you'd be imperiling the lives of many or all on board with any delays or substantial mistakes. The bottom line on physical qualification is simple, that in too many cases, only the passenger really knows if he or she is fit to be there. If the passenger lies about it, a link in the causal chain of an avoidable disaster may have just been forged. So I'd say if they lie about it, or simply if they just overestimate what their abilities are, um, and say, I've always been told I've been able to do whatever, or yes, I can, you know, handle this this 50 pounds plus of weight it's going to take to open and sustain this this door. No problem. I can do any of it. Okay. In other words, an otherwise successful evacuation could be thwarted and precious life-saving seconds lost if the wrong person says yes and remains in the exit row. Those hatches are heavy. We're talking about 40 to 50 pounds. And that's not just weight as in suitcase. You can lift carefully by a handle from the floor, but dead weight you'd have to lift intact from the interior of the window frame. Hold at chest level and either thread back through the window to throw it clear or place it on a now hopefully empty seat. That takes upper body strength, reasonable strong arms and back, and very fast, clear thinking action. Okay, so that's that's a lot, right? That's a lot. You're on a plane. You're on a plane. You're you're in that seat. And you're responsible to be able to get that door open in a good faith effort. Like you truly think that you have the ability to do that. 
So let me ask this. How long before someone feels that they have been subjected to escape hatch shaming? And instead of just forfeiting that seat um, to a person who is more physically fit, more more brutish, um, they just they're allowed to sit there. They, anybody can sit there now because we are not going to engage as an industry, an airline industry in an escape hatch shaming. Someone who is urged in front of other passengers to, hey, please don't sit there. We don't think you'd be able to get this open and our lives depend on it, okay? Or what's going to happen, the airline industries will simply, if, if, if this happens, this you know, becomes a thing, the airline industries will pay for an employee to sit there who is capable of doing these things, has demonstrated so much lifting strength and whatever and is trained in this. And then you'll pay for it in your ticket or else they'll just degrade the service by that amount. So planes might not be quite as clean, quite as kept up because they are now paying somebody to sit in that seat just for the remote chance that that door might have to be opened when there are other capable people on the plane of doing that. So do you follow where I'm going with all of this? We are beginning to see the erosion we're beginning to see the erosion of independent choice. We are beginning to see the acceptance of wealth shaming, the banning of certain brands. Now, I could see this. I could see a logic behind this if a school is saying these things are getting stolen, kids are being held up for these, um, because they know if they sell them, they can be used for drug money or what. I mean, I could see that as an argument that you could present and say, listen, don't bring this stuff in because like, you're, we can't guarantee that you, you're going to be protected um, here or in other settings. And we just recommend in general, like it's good to keep a lower profile. That's good advice from a safety perspective. That's not the case here. It's because... I am podcasting with my sport coat, which I bought off eBay, by the way. I am podcasting with my sport coat in my UW pin. I have my PhD for UW. But somebody is watching this, and they are feeling oppressed right now because they didn't attend UW, and they they don't have a sport coat. Not that expensive to buy and use, by the way. And um, is that where we're going to be at? We are going to see censoring, shaming of brand names, um, a lack of, of motivation to make something that is of, of super high quality and maybe is going to cost more. We're going to see the shaming of you know first-class flying, private golf clubs. We're going to see property shaming. It won't be long. We'll see that your house, the quote-unquote rich neighborhoods. I remember a friend of mine who said um, he liked to, he lived in the Minneapolis area, 
like to run in these neighborhoods with the very high-end homes. And the reason he liked doing that is he said most of them had been built around the turn of the century, these mansions, and they looked really cool. And he loved the architecture. He said, now, did I feel like in awe or in envy? He said, maybe a little bit in awe because back then to build these probably, you know, not probably, it took a lot of work, very fine craftsmanship and ornate, I mean. Um, but in envy, no. Appreciate it that they were there was kind of, uh, you know, the aesthetics were pleasing, but didn't want to live there. Um, it didn't want to pay the heat bill and just didn't want that much, you know, a, didn't want to be responsible for that, but was glad it was there and didn't hold a grudge against the person that owned it or had built it or whatever. So it really comes down to how we treat each other, right? And if we are telling some of our students that they can't wear certain clothing, where does that go next? And again, is it iPhones? Is it, is it going over to the families? Is it going to start going into academic performance? You're too good at this. You're too good at this. Are we going to take schools? Like I said, why not take this school and compare it to the other schools in that conference or whatever equivalent they have, area schools? And if they don't have the same types of things, what would it take to balance things out? Maybe they've got to give up some things to these other schools to just make it more equitable. Because those students attending those other schools and those parents certainly know that, hey, we we know that Woodchurch High School is the, the school to go to. They've got the nice stuff. They've got the most veteran teachers because they pay higher. I don't know. So... But folks, I think we're at a very dangerous tipping point here for these microaggressions and these direct solutions, which aren't solutions at all. And if it's okay to do this step, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step before we get into wealth redistribution, which completely changes things? And then what's the motivation for people? Yeah, I guess, you know, people are driven to create and to give back. But there is also capitalist motivation to people to create a company or industry that is is going to employ many people and be able to bring new things into the world that have never been here before. That stuff, just it'll never get off the ground. It'll be squelched at the early stages. We're really going to stifle innovation, creativity. And it's going to be a question of, if you're good, are you too good? Are you too good? All right, everybody, take care. This is the Safety Doc, Dr. David Brody. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti.
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.